Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. My name is Audra. All right. And my name is Audra. <laughs> <laughs> There's twice. I know that's I can't get used to it. Hi. Well, we All right. So what we were just talking about, the paneling in my apartment, and the roof. <laughs> it, the AC is dripping. So basically, we're just continuing continuing the conversation, but we just restrict yeah. record. Exactly. Hi, Aiden. That's what the beginning is. Hi, Aiden. Hi, mom. Hi, everybody. Okay, go ahead. So, <laughs> it's dr- it it was dripping into my ceiling, which is like foam, I guess, kind of or whatever it's that material is. Just paneling. Yeah. And then it would droop down and drip onto my floor. Had the maintenance people look at it. All they did was take all the paneling on the roof off. So then it just dripped straight from the AC unit. And then they came back to look at it again, I guess, and not fix anything for the second time. And then it's just dripping from more places than one now all onto my floor. So that's my apartment situation right now. So what you're saying is you're paying an exorbitant amount of money in yep. LA for an apartment that is I'm paying for crap. a micro a microwave on a chair because the outlets don't work, <laughs> a dripping AC unit and no kitchen appliances. So it's literally <laughs> a room with nothing and it's way too expensive. <laughs> so awesome. Welcome to LA. Awesome. Okay, well you came home this weekend for Mother's Day. Thank yep. you. That was very sweet. You only you weren't even home. For, you weren't even home for twenty four hours. We almost died again in our hike. We have a tradition. <laughs> yeah. We hike on Mother's Day, and almost every year we get into a mishap where we go off the path because we think yep. we're fine. Yep. And then with kids and dogs, and we get stuck somewhere precarious. It gets really hot. Everyone's freaking yep. out. We feel like we're gonna have to call an airlift. Well, no, ride. that's how I feel like you have the most anxiety when we get lost. <laughs> You have to feel like we have to call an airlift. Everybody else is like, oh, look at the salamander. And that's that's it. <laughs> Do we have salamanders? We, but we did. Yeah, we have salamander. I'm pretty sure. It was more like I've, a snake. It was a snake. It was yeah, a, we saw a snake. Yeah. Gardener snake or something. Yeah. Everyone thought it was a but, rattlesnake um, with no rattle. Every, because our dogs are basically shut-ins. They no, just sit inside or just, they sit in the yard all day. In a very nice little yard. They're very spoiled dogs. <laughs> so... Um, they don't know how to be on many things that can be laying on the floor. For example, sticks, <laughs> small rocks, wet rocks, and any dirt, <laughs> and obstacles of any kind. So, basically, we started walking down a stream. By the way, this it's is not a, a river. This is a black lab. You're making it was just Jack. He's a black yeah. lab, and he's yeah. the sweetest, the best dog I've ever had. But he's very nice. He's an anxious dog, so he got a little. He's an anxious out. dog. Yeah. Well, he's a very nice dog. He's very cute. But when he sees a rock. He freaks out. So we tried to walk down this stream. And then Jack just actually physically could not go anymore. We had to pick him up and carry him over hills, rocks, dirt, sticks. So then we just turned around. We went up the side of a hill. Probably almost all got poison oak. And then we left. Yep. And that was our Mother's Day hike. Yeah. It was fun. Though. And I love it every year. Yep. It it's fun every laugh. year. If I don't get an adrenaline <laughs> rush from it, it's not a good Mother's Day. Yep, you have to feel alive I every do. day on Mother's Day. It, yeah, that's what makes me feel like <laughs> I have purpose. Okay, so we were supposed to record yesterday, but you have midterms mm-hmm. and you got a little overwhelmed with mm-hmm. 400 midterms and you had class mm-hmm. till late. So we're getting a little late again this week. Mm-hmm. And if we had done it on yesterday, it would have been the birthday of the person that we were talking about today, who is Richie Valens. Mm. So All right. he would have been 77 yesterday, 8th, 13th. So we are going to talk about Richie Valens in the day the music died. Um, that's it. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> I just had a brain. That was the shortest <laughs> podcast ever. <laughs> I had a brain fart. Sorry. <laughs> so Richie Valens is from Pacoima, um, which I looked up how to say it. Pacoima, Pacoima. Nobody can give me crap about it because that's exactly and how where's, you say it. What state is that in California? Uh, yeah. The hi, okay. hi, the podcast is almost LA. <laughs> well, I think I think I know what city you're talking about, or like how to, how it's spelled, but I've never heard it said before. I don't think so. That's right. It sounds weird. It is weird. Um, well, h- hey, weirdly enough, I have a lot of information you probably don't care about about why Pacoima is where it's at and why it's that at. Okay. So Pacoima <laughs> is 23 miles northwest of downtown LA. Oh well. In okay. the, Cer- in the San Fernando Valley, mm-hmm. um, you actually drove past it on the way home. Oh, that's the place. Yeah, duh. That was two days ago. Yeah, I'd, I've never heard that said before. Okay, Pacoima. 
Um, so Pacoima comes from the Tataviam Tataviam <laughs> tribe. Well, you got one, <laughs> but the other on the second not so sentence much. I failed. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. It's T A T A V I A M tribe, which is the tribe that was in that area fifteen hundred years ago. Um, Tataviam, Tataviam. <laughs> I'm literally my mom right now. Hi, Nana. Thanks for passing yep. along the gene of not being able to pronounce things. Um, so they were in the area, and it was originally called um, Pacoing, Pacoinga Village, P-A-C-O-I-N-G-A. I'm butchering that, too. <laughs> this is a spelling bee and a <laughs> podcast. Yes. And so eventually, obviously, came Pacoima. So it's one of the oldest neighborhoods in the San Fernando Valley. And the valley, okay, which I'm sure everybody who was anywhere in the 80s alive, um, the valley became a thing. And the valley is technically bordered by the Santa Monica Mountains and the Hollywood Hills to the south. And then the Santa Susana Mountains and the San Gabriel Mountains to the north. So it's, I'm going to kind of give you a few cities in the valley. Burbank, Studio City, Encino, Woodland Hills, Chatsworth. Uh, Selmar and Pacoima that's kind of a circle of the outer ring of it and then there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of in the the middle so there's a bunch of um, towns in there which is most of them are part of you know the district of LA and some of them are not um, but it's basically um, the San Fernando Valley and locally that whole area is called the valley which is what we all call it and in the 80s it had its own accent and sayings so I'm going to get super 80s on you right now. Ready? Gag me with a spoon. I literally knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I literally knew that's the saying you were going to say. Grody, for sure. And there's an amazing Frank Zappa song. Uh, should we play it? Called, I think it's called Valley Girls. I didn't have it on here, but maybe I'll, Valley play, Girls. I'll play it really quick. Oh, Valley Girls. It's hilarious. No. So Clueless um, is immortalized kind of the valley in the 90s but when I was growing up in the 80s the mall I used to go to was called the Valley West and skateboarding was a big thing which is of course an LA thing which we'll talk about a California thing mostly but not specifically LA but um, we all want to be valley girls here hold on and his daughter is the one singing the valley girl stuff PTSD. That's about an almost five-minute song of that, and it's hilarious. So there you go. And I'm sure nobody in their right mind would have said Valley Girls and Richie Valens were going to be played on the same podcast. But there you go. All right. So, um, but back in the 40s, um, it was, and before that, it was primarily an agricultural community with a lot of Mexican workers, apricots and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, when World War II came around, um, as we have talked about in other podcasts, the aerospace uh, industry came in. Lockheed came into Burbank, which is neighboring Pacoima, and brought in a, a, a lot of African-American workers and some more Hispanic workers. Um, and because, again, of the restrictive covenants that we talked about in the Watts episode, uh, there that was kind of the only place outside of northern part of L.A., where certain minorities could live. So Pacoima became kind of a booming town at that point. Um, and it was considered, and it still is, kind of a sleepy suburban neighborhood. And they had, they actually had a, a large uh, Japanese population as well, too. And they have a bunch of good schools up there. And it's pretty diverse up there still to this day. Hispanic, African-American, and Japanese, and white. So um, it's pretty cool up there. So Richard Stephen... Uh, Valenzuela was born on May 13th, 1941, in Pacoima, and he's better known as Richie Valens, and he made history as rock music's first Latino star. 
Growing up in Pacoima, Richie developed a love of music at an early age, um, around five is what I guess when he kind of started getting really interested in music and he was really encouraged by his dad. He would later start to play the guitar um, and the trumpet and the drums are kind of the three instruments that he was really into and I guess he played some more instruments as well. But guitar was his main passion. Um, he actually slept with his guitar and carried around with him everywhere from class to class in school. All right. He was never away from it. He was really inspired by traditional Mexican music and R&B acts, but rock and roll became his main focus, and he was uh, like over the moon about rock and roll, wanted to be everything about it, hear everything about it, and be a rock and roll star. That was his main goal. So when you kind of research Richie, um, his famous song, La Bamba, which we'll talk about in a second, he uh, didn't speak Spanish, which I thought was interesting. And when you look up his kind of genealogy, it says his parents are from Mexico, which, as we know in California, and many of my f- um, friends or my kids' friends whose parents are first generation, which means they are, you know, came up here from Mexico, um, they speak Spanish and English. So I thought it was interesting that he didn't speak Spanish. He knew a little Spanish. According to his family, he kind of did speak a little Spanish but because his dad didn't speak Spanish, which I thought was interesting. Um, he never really spoke it unless other family members were kind of speaking to him. And but his brothers, uh, his brother and sisters, kind of spoke Spanish because they had different fathers. Um, but when I kind of went to his genealogy, his parents were actually born in. Um, his dad was born in California, and his mom was born in Arizona. And um, so he was. He's considered like a third generation. So that makes more sense to me. Interestingly enough, and his mom. When you see the movie La Bamba, which is based on his, uh, loosely based on his life, short life, um, she said she's, her dad was 100% Yaqui Indian. Um, so, and that's, there's a big tribe of that in Arizona. So um, that's where her being born in Arizona completely makes sense. Um, his father's name was Steven, and his mom's name was Concepcion, and they called her Connie. He had an older brother, half brother, Bobby, um, and he was about three when Richie was born. And then he had uh, another two younger sisters and a younger brother, but there was a 10-year age gap. Um, okay. So Richie's older brother, his name is Bobby Morales. He's heavily um, portrayed in the movie La Bamba, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I'm sure everybody's seen that. I don't know if you have eight, and I can't remember if you have or not. Um, what? Seen the movie? Yeah. You seen La Bamba? Um, I feel like you guys maybe watch it when I was like really little, because I know th- about the movie, um, but I can't remember anything from it. Yeah, well, we're gonna talk about it. Um, so Richie, uh, Richie's parents divorced when he was around four, and his dad moved pretty close by, and he also spent a lot of time kind of back and forth with different aunts and uncles as well, and um, his dad ended up passing away. When Richie was about 10 in 1951, his dad had been in World War One mm. and had a lifelong complication from contact with mustard gas. So oh, damn. when you see the movie, they say he's an, he died of alcoholism. So that's one of the things that Hollywood changed. He actually died because he was a war hero from mustard gas. Why did Hollywood change that? Um, because I think more Bo- dramatic Bobby was um, an alcoholic and kind of had troubles with the law and was in jail at one point. And I think it probably was more Hollywood romantic to have the dad be an alcoholic and die of that. And then Bobby be an alcoholic and then Richie kind of be this like superstar musician, you know, prodigy. Um, That's my opinion. Um, So when Richie was little, his mom would take the kids to the million dollar theater in downtown LA. And they used to open the movies, the Spanish language movies with Spanish comics and singers. um, And, because back in the day, before you had like previews, they would have actual performers. Um, and that's when Richie kind of got his love of um, Mexican uh, music. And he loved this charo singer named Tito Guazar. Is that how I'm going to pronounce that? Uh, by junior high, he was playing guitar everywhere at assemblies, school parties. And he even actually made an electric guitar in, in shop class out of scraps, which I thought was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um so when he was a kid, 
uh, on January 31st, 1957, two planes were involved in a mid-air collision and crashed above the schoolyard of uh, one of the Pacoima schools. Whoa. And by February 1st, seven people had died. Um, about 75 had been injured, and a, um, a 12-year-old boy had, like, multiple injuries. All in all, eight passed, um, and Richie's, one of his really good friends, died in that um, accident and then he also had a, a couple of friends who actually ended up in wheelchairs for the rest of their lives and he missed that day of school um, in a twist of fate uh, because he would his, his grandfather's funeral um, so when you see some of his family members his brothers and sisters uh, later on interviewed they're like you know going to that funeral actually saved Richie's life you know but it also gave him a lifelong fear of flying and then a few months later in Pacoima, on June 10th, 1957, a light aircraft hit a house in Pacoima, and four passengers on board died, um, and eight people in the house were injured. So, again, reestablishing, I am scared of flying. Another reason right. not to fly. When he was 16, Valens joined his first band called The Silhouettes. Um, he played guitar, didn't sing at first. He wasn't really a si known as a strong singer at first, and they played local gigs, mostly garage parties, and the local American Legion Hall, which is where he um, started playing a lot when they got pretty good. And at one of these Legion Hall um, concerts, he was spotted by Bob Keen, uh, who is the head of Delphi Records. Now, at this point, when Bob Keen came into the picture, Richie was actually singing, so kind of the story goes is that he was guitar player the lead singer didn't have a really good voice but he was kind of like super alpha and then when Richie's mom kind of started getting him gigs around town specifically at this Legion Hall the lead singer I think was feeling overshadowed by Richie and quit or left or something and then Richie ended up stepping in and singing and then, then that's when he was kind of word of mouth about him got around and Bob Keen showed up to hear him and asked him to come down to his studio um, to audition. So he went down there on around May of 1958. And before long, he had his first single out on Delphi called Come On, Let's Go. And it became a minor hit eventually. Um, but you'll see in the movie that it took like 60 takes to get, um, you know, the song down and... and you know, all that kind of stuff and his struggles with learning how to be a recording kind of star. And he actually wrote that song. Richie Valens wrote the song. And it was released eventually on a 45 with the song framed on the other side. So Aiden's going to play Come On, Let's Go, his first hit. let's go. go it's fun to listen to yeah total fun um i just said total fun that's so weird total fun <laughs> sorry in an la times article um july 19th 1987 richie's mother said when she was kind of um, being interviewed for the movie la bamba that came out she said quote i still remember the first time we heard richie sing on the radio i told his brother bob come on let's go to saugus they got into her car and when the song came on the radio, they pulled the car over, and she said, we just sat there looking at each other um, in, ama in amazement. And so I thought this was a really charming statement by her part because he named that song and wrote that song um, based on the fact that she always used to say to the kids, come on, let's go, when they were leaving the house. And right. she's literally still saying it 30 years later in this interview, which I don't even think she really realized that she was probably saying it. I just thought it was yeah. interesting. So when Richie, you know, went to uh, record that song, Keen uh, clearly saw dollar signs. And, and to widen Richie's audience, remember at this point he's still called Richard, uh, he encouraged him to change his name. And it ended up being Richie Valens. 
um, and to make it more radio friendly, meaning to appeal to white people. Um, Keane quickly had Valens working on his next songs. He wrote his version of La Bamba, which is a, um, a Mexican folk song. And La Bamba ended up being the first Spanish language song to make it into the top 10 pop charts. And mm. as I said before, Valens was not a native Spanish speaker. Um, so he was kind of coached all the way through the song um, to for the Spanish because he was kind of cranking out these first couple singles pretty quickly. So Aiden's going to play uh, Richie's La Bamba, and then I'm going to play a early version of like an original La Bamba song. Is that the Richie Valens version? That's what it says, yeah. Yeah. I think the one I was listening to sounded a little different. Oh, really? Yeah. So when you, if you go to, to uh, YouTube and Google like La Bamba, you'll see mm -hmm. that people have kind of taken on his version. You know, when they do the traditional Mexican folk song La Bamba, it now sounds like his. So I found yeah. one from 1939, clearly before uh, Richie Valens and this is kind of the an original uh the folk more folk version of la bamba it's a little staticky so just fyi There you go. Yeah. So you can see how he made it yeah. rock and roll. Yeah. Now for fun, I thought we could give you the English lyrics to La Bamba since I'm sure everyone sings it butchers the Spanish and then doesn't know what they're saying right it's to dance the La Bamba to dance the La Bamba I'm sorry I'm saying La Bamba to dance the Bamba to dance the Bamba you need a little grace a little grace from me for you ah higher and higher ah higher and higher I'll be for you, I'll be for you, I'll be for you. I'm not a sailor, I'm not a sailor, I'm a captain, I'm a captain, I'm a captain. Bamba, 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 bam. To dance the bamba, to dance the bamba, you need a little grace, a little grace from me, for you, uh, higher and higher. Okay. <laughs> Don't give me a recording contract. <laughs> You're a rapper now. <laughs> rapper. Yay. Um, so there you go that's La Bamba and that ended up being probably a bigger hit um, after his passing than it was before you know um, I learned how to when I was learning how to play piano I played that one La Bamba at yeah, school or, or when you were a kid no with Michelle oh really yeah oh, how funny yeah Aiden took piano as a kid because we forced all the kids to play piano yeah, even if I they hate it. even if they hate it, at least for a couple of <laughs> years. But I think that's good yeah. for you when you learn other music, right? It was, yeah, that no, was so good. So there you go. I didn't hate it either. I just never practiced. So his next uh, single that he worked on, he was called Donna, and he wrote that for his high school girlfriend, Donna Ludwig. Um, it became a popular ba ballad, eventually climbing as high as number two on the top pop charts. Now Donna, um, they were dating. She from the movie. It, you know, she moved into the area. She's white, clearly. Her dad didn't approve, obviously. And as far as I know, that from her accounts, that is was accurate. Um, his siblings also said, you know, at first he was a little prejudiced against the situation, um, but she ended up becoming a 
you know, helpful uh, later after his passing with the kids um, and, you know, being a part of the family. Um, and even after years and years of uh, later on when she was married and had her own family, she kept in touch with Richie's family and would show up to events and stuff to honor him. So um, I think they had a really, you know, they were each other's first loves and, and uh, he wrote her a song because he eventually had to go on the road and he missed her and she wasn't too thrilled with, you know, him leaving, but she supported his career and what he was doing, but it was obviously difficult for them. So he wrote her a song at one point. So here it is. Here's Donna. Donna. Mm. Now in the movie, he like writes the song because she kind of, I don't think they really broke up, but she was like, go do your thing. You're gone all the time because he was on that at this point recording and, and doing all this stuff. And uh, um, in the movie, he like calls her from a pay phone and, and sings it to her over the phone and she like cries and this whole thing. Classic and Hollywood. Yeah, but apparently that's exactly what happened because he was so busy. Aww. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we had pay phones back then. So riding on the success of Come On, Let's Go, which was at the time the only um, song he had kind of on the radio, which Keen, you know, had to kind of sneak on the radio and lie to DJs about who he was and what was going on at the beginning. Uh, Valens had to drop out of high school, which was why he was gone and Donna was all bummed out. And they ended up going on an East Coast tour uh, starting in September. And Keen told him he had to fly back east. So originally they were kind of like driving all over the place and then... um, you know, he's like, eventually you're going to have to fly. And so he finally agreed to do it. And he overcame his fear and got in the plane. He also entertained a national audience on American Bandstand that December. Um, and he also appeared on Fred, or sorry, Alan Freed's Christmas show around that time as well. Now, you can't, unfortunately, the American Bandstand um, episode that aired on TV is no longer around nobody can find it so when you watch the show dick clark announces him um but they're actually doing like a voice dubbed if you know somebody else is like saying richie valens but it's his thing so there's not a whole lot of very few original recordings of richie valens himself um but unfortunately that that um and there's not very many live tapings of him actually singing you have his voice recordings but not a lot of video because obviously it wasn't popular back then so it's hard to find anything of him actually playing um, that you can see. So around this time, um, Valens went on the road with what was called the Winter Dance Party Tour, and he was one of the up-and-coming next big stars, so he was invited to go on tour, and it featured such acts as Buddy Holly, um, who kind of set the whole thing up, uh, Dion and the Belmonts, and JP the Big Bopper Richardson, who got his nickname from his early days in radio as a DJ, and the a dance that was popular back then was called the bop and he to kind of brand himself he called himself the big bopper for radio um and he had a famous song called chantilly lace you know that chantilly lace da, 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 da. that's my version um holly's uh had left his original band the crickets so he started out as uh, buddy holly and the crickets and they had broken up and he put together a new group for this tour so his band was himself, Buddy Holly, Waylon Jennings, who went on to become a <coughs> huge country star, um, Tommy Alsup, um, another country star, they all kind of grew up in Texas together, and Carl Bunch. Over three weeks, uh, the performers were set to play 24 concerts in the Midwest, and it would end up being a disaster in numerous ways. The shows were often scheduled 100 miles apart from one another, and they zigzag through one of the deadliest winters in the Midwest uh, that they'd had actually in decades. 
Um, and they also had the worst possible transportation available. They were in old reconditioned school buses and most of them had no heat and the buses would break down and they'd show up with another reconditioned bus with no heat. Um, and back then, as a side note, you didn't have roadies. So everybody had to slap all their stuff all over the place themselves in and out of the bus into the, you know, thing. That's just kind of how they did it. And, you know, now you have like a, an agent, uh, you know, who does your tour and, and, you know, to get you there in the shortest amount of time, you know, but back then that wasn't really a thing. It was just like, oh, you can take them then. Okay, well, we'll do this here. There was no like really scheduling of that. So on any given day, they were driving hundreds and hundreds of miles every day and then end up back in the same place two days later, you know, which made no sense. So they were all crammed into these drafty buses to perform in these small ball ballrooms and theaters. And by February 1st, Carl Bunch, who was Buddy Holly's drummer, the it was so cold, he got frostbitten on his feet in multiple toes and ended up in the hospital. So he ended up having to leave the tour. So just to give you an idea, every day they were in a different place. So like one day they're in Wisconsin <clears throat> they're in Milwaukee, then Kenosha, Wisconsin, then Minnesota, then Wisconsin again, then Minnesota, then Minnesota, then Iowa, then Iowa, then Minnesota again, then Wisconsin, then Iowa. So they were like literally zigzagging. Yeah, that's not cool. Yeah. So by this point, they had started kind of in January 23rd. On February 2nd, they ended up in the surf ballroom at Clear in Clear Lake, Iowa. Um, and the surf ballroom was one of the first rock and rock and roll clubs in the area and the theme of the surf ballroom as you can imagine was palm trees ocean you know hula that whole kind of thing very california hawaii-esque kind of decor and on a little family story side note my mom and dad grew up about 40 minutes away in corwith ira iowa which they had a population of right now it's there's a population of 309 in corwith um the boom, the population boom in Corwith in 1900 was 651 people. So Mason City in Clear Lake, Mason City is where the airport was that they ended up taking off of later on, which we'll talk about. Um, mm. All these little towns were little t tiny farming towns in this area. Cornfields, flat, teeny tiny farming towns, you know, not a whole lot going on. So the surf ballroom was like a big deal in this area. And so... Yeah when my mom in the spring of 1958 i think she was a senior in, in high school she was on the uh the queen's court of the hancock county queen's court so they had something that was called a county-wide prom queen which is kind of weird and three girls from her senior class were on this court so there was a queen she can't remember who the queen was i think she does but she doesn't want to tell us because she was because <laughs> she was an attendant so she was like an attendant of the court right um, and they held their big event of this whole thing was at the surf ballroom. And so that's the kind of stuff that would go on besides these big concerts would be these kind of, you know, local, you know, events for the high school and stuff. So it was a big part of the community. So the show um, for the winter dance party went great. Um, at this point, though, because Carl had left with his frostbite, um, the big bopper had come down with the flu. Um, and the next day, they were supposed to be in Moorhead, Minnesota, which is about 363 miles away. <sighs> Today, it would be about a five-hour, 20-minute drive. But because the buses were so rickety and old, you could tack on probably another three to four hours on top of that. So it was going to be an all-night ride. And they wouldn't get in. They were estimating until early morning. Um, and they were just afraid that they weren't going to sleep because no one was sleeping. Big Bopper was a big guy. He was complaining about being cramped in the car and he didn't feel well. Um, so Holly was over the entire situation at that point. And he decided to charter a small three-seat plane um, to get into Minnesota. And the closest airport would have been Fargo, North Dakota. Um, and he wanted the a couple from the headlining act to go with him so they could get some sleep. Um, and since they were, you know, obviously the, probably the most important of the group. So Carol Anderson, who was the manager of the surf, started calling around for planes and a pilot to get them um, to their gig the next day. And that is another family story. My parents' high school friend, his name is Thurman Gaskell, was actually called. He was about 21 at the time. He was a couple years older than my dad. Mm. He went to high school. He graduated with my dad's older brother. 
Um, and he was a well-known, like his family was a very well-known farming family in the community and he also knew how to fly. So they had called him to fly this plane and he turned him down because he said the conditions were so bad that no plane should be flying. They were having one of the worst winter storms in Iowa that they'd had, as, as I said, in a long time. So he said no. So I thought that was pretty cool. And you, Aiden, I don't know if you remember. That's really weird. You met Thurman over Thanksgiving. He was with us at oh. Thanksgiving. He ended up becoming a state senator. So he's pretty well known in the area. Um, so at some point, the snow was about waist deep. And that night, they were having flurries off and on. And at times, the temperature was dipping down to negative 36 Fahrenheit, which for our people who don't do Fahrenheit, which is everybody, negative 38 degrees Celsius. Wait. I know. I thought that was weird. No, too, that's not that's right. Yeah. Look it up because that's what it said. So it was 36 degrees because if it's 38 degrees Celsius, that I mean, that's literally like Antarctica. I'm pretty sure. I'll look it up real quick. But keep yeah, going. Well, it's negative 36 Fahrenheit. And then they said that the Celsius of that was negative 38. So Dwyer Flying Service uh, said that they would actually provide the plane. And they found a 21-year-old pilot. His name is Roger Peterson. Um, and he said he'd do it. And the original three that were supposed to go in the plane were Buddy Holly, Waylon Jennings, and Tommy Alsop. Waylon ended up giving his seat up pretty quickly to the big bopper because he was so sick. Um, you know, thinking like, feeling bad for him, basically. And when Waylon told Holly that bopper was taking his seat, Holly, who, who had been a longtime friend of Jennings from Texas, said, quote, well, I, I hope your old bus freezes up. And Jennings' reply was, well, I hope your old plane crashes. Mm. And Jennings said that, that that statement haunted him the rest of his life. And he ended up going on to have uh, probably survivor's guilt. He was drug, alcohol problems. Um, even though he was very successful, he had issues with that throughout his, his life and career. Um, according to Alsep, Valens kept pestering him for his seat on the plane because he was coming down with the flu and wasn't feeling well. And Alsa ignored him a few times and then finally told Valens that they could flip a coin for it. So Val Valens, uh, Alsa flipped the coin, Valens called heads and won. And so Alsa gave up his seat. So that night after the gig, um, Anderson drove them to the Mason City Municipal Airport to catch this tiny little plane. There was a light snowstorm when the plane took off and it ended up uh, no one ended up calling uh, Dwyer, the owner of the flight service, all night, and he didn't hear from him in that morning as well. Um, so he took off to go uh, find out in his own plane where they ha where they had gone, obviously thinking that something had happened, and it only took him a few minutes to find the crash um, of the plane. <clears throat> it was about six miles away from the airport, didn't go very far. They were in a cornfield, and all four passengers, Richardson, Holly, and Valens, and then the pilot, Peterson, were killed. Valens was just 17 years old and had only been recording um, with uh, Keen for eight months. So wow. he, he'd literally only been popular, famous, whatever, or known for eight months, which is crazy. Um, so it determined... Uh, that after with an investigation that the plane hit the ground about 170 miles an hour with the right wing hitting the ground and cartwheeling holly valens and richardson were all thrown from the plane in different directions and peterson was stuck in his uh pilot seat there was some initial confusion as to who was on the flight because alsop had given holly his wallet so he could pick up some mail for him at the next town mm -hmm. and so he was misidentified at first um so Anderson, uh, knowing who was on the plane, had to go to the, the wreckage, and he identified all the bodies and got everything kind of cleared up. It was later uh, confirmed that Peterson was only qualified to fly under visual flight rules, which means he really couldn't, he wasn't really trained to fly with bad weather conditions, and it was virtually, like, had no visibility that night. And it was also determined that he was uh, trained on inst he wasn't trained on the instruments in the plane which was a Beechcraft 35 Bonanza that he was flying um, he had four years of flight time and he had a, had qualified for a lot of other stuff but he specifically in those conditions in that flight he just had no experience unfortunately so he shouldn't have been flying that plane anyway and they nobody should have been up on that weather um, unfortunately the families of those who passed found out about their deaths from the radio uh, Bobby 
Richie's brother heard it on the radio and ran immediately to their mom's house uh, and house that Richie had bought her. He had just bought her a brand new house because they lived in a kind of a rundown small house before. Um, and she'd already heard it from the radio as well and she'd collapsed to the floor um, and she ended up having a very difficult time after the fact. Um, and that's where Donna kind of came in and ended up taking care of her younger kids because they were all, she had three very small children at the time that she was taking care of on her own. The, um, she was a single parent. The big bopper's wife was about eight months pregnant. Um, she gave birth to his son two months after the crash. And Buddy Holly's new wife, they'd only been married a couple months. She was a few weeks pregnant and ended up having a miscarriage due to the stress um, of finding out the situation and the, the wreckage. Um, because of this, it became policy for authorities not to disclose victims' names until the families had been notified. So that whole thing when you hear on the radio you know, or the news that they're withholding names is due to this accident. So something good came out of a tragedy, I guess. And the rest is rock and roll history. Uh, Bobby V and the Shadows performed in Fargo, North Dakota on the 3rd. Um, so they kind of, other people kind of came in and started picking up for the tour. Uh, Jimmy Clanton, Fabian, and Frankie Allen were substituted as the tour's headliners. Uh, Frankie Sardo, Dion, and the Belmonts, and the Crickets continued until the end of the tour. So everybody kind of came in and, and helped out. Uh, the day is now forever memorialized as the day the music died, and Don McLean uh, came out with his 1972 anthem, American Pie, uh, which is about uh, the plane crash, basically, and losing you know three of new rock and roll's top people. Um, for many people, the tour and the subsequent crash symbolized the end of a, of a period in both rock and roll and American history. And they say that's when innocence was lost forever. So as you know, that's in 59. And then you go into the 60s where it's like hippies and a different kind of music. So that kind of mm -hmm. where the Manson murders we talked about kind of ended the 60s. This kind of ended the 50s, kind of like innocent rock and roll kind of phase. Okay. So Aiden's going to play American Pie for us. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile and I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while but February made me shiver with every paper I'd deliver bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry And then good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye Singing, this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Did you write the... Okay, yeah. I wanted to wait till the uh, well, of course, duh. super recognizable a part. Classic yeah. song. Yeah. So now, when you hear, you know, listen to the lyrics, you know what they're talking about. It says, "But February made me shiver because obviously mm -hmm. it happened in February." With yep. every paper, paper I deliver, because all the news was in the paper and radio before everybody came around. What I read about his widowed bride is is Buddy Holly. Um, and there you go, on and on and on. Wow. So a couple of little kind of conspiracy things I'm going to debunk here. So a lot of people, for some reason, think the plane that they went down in was called American Pie, and that's why Don McLean called it American Pie. But that is not true. The plane had no name. Um, it just had a, a serial number. And American Pie is clearly, like, if it's American Innocence, American Pie is our kind of classic all-American food pie kind of thing that we refer to right. when we think about classic American stuff. And then another kind of more dire conspiracy is it's an Internet conspiracy, and some were saying that the plane didn't actually crash, that 
actually there was a gun that went off in the plane and that the pilot was shot uh, through because there supposedly was a the pilot seat supposedly had a gunshot like hole through it and people were saying that the big bopper initially survived the crash and walked away from it and I don't know where this comes from but it's on the internet and if you google big bopper conspiracy it's literally the first thing that pops up um, because I guess they said they found a gun in the cornfield somewhere but it, it, you know that could have been anybody's gun I mean honestly cornfields are very tall and you could get lost in them hello children of the corn and I'm sure there's things that get lost in there all the time or it could have been somebody's gun and thrown from the wreckage who knows um, but it was such a big conspiracy that the big bopper's son who was actually the in his the one that was born after the crash he ended up exhuming his dad's body because of this and had a forensic anthropologist um, go over the body and they determined that there was no gun bullets anywhere and there was no way that he walked away from this crash because he had massive head and body trauma that there's literally almost every bone in his body was broken um, and there's no way that he walked away he died immediately um, but eerily he said that his dad's f face was like looked exactly like his he did you know when he passed I don't know how that's possible um, but he wanted to see the body himself and he said he just looked like his dad which is kind of crazy so um, Valens left behind a few recordings uh, as I said before his first self-titled album was released eight days after the accident and it did well on the charts a live recording was later released as Richie Valens in concert at Pacoima Junior High and those are both on iTunes. And then, of course, his life story was memorialized on the big screen with the 1987 hit La Bamba. And the band uh, Los Labos from East L.A. recorded the soundtrack. And they're actually in the movie in the Tijuana scene uh, where Richie hears La Bamba um, and decides to record it. And, of course, as I said, La Bamba was kind of part reality, part Hollywood. Um, and the family said they were interviewed later on and they said that um, you know they got some things wrong but overall it brought a sense of peace to the family knowing that Richie would be memorialized forever with the movie um, especially his younger siblings they don't remember him that well um, they said that it was really hard on the mom and Bobby because they were obviously adults and you know and the mother um, and the little kids just remember him being like a very sweet musical giving lots of hugs and kisses to his little siblings that they really missed and um, that's kind of the memory that they have so each february since 1979 the surf ballroom hosts a winter dance party tribute still going on today if you want to check it out the decor of the ballroom is exactly the same um, with memorial of the plane crash and valens and holly and the big bopper all over the walls and people that go say it's like stepping back in time and Nana was just there a little while ago. She goes on her girls' trips with her <laughs> friends. They went one year. And also in 1979, Al opened up his Tommy's Heads Up Saloon in North Fort Worth, and which is obviously named after the corn, uh, coin toss or corn toss, because <laughs> um, it's Iowa, that he had with Valens. All right. <laughs> which I don't know if I dig that name or not, because <laughs> he's kind of... He's kind of uh, monopolizing on the fact that he won the coin toss and is alive and... Well, lost the coin toss. Well, lost, but ended yeah. up winning, I guess. Is yeah. What I'm looking at is it as. And Valens was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001. So he... Can you, I, it, I, I just can't get over... You know, and his songs are still very popular. That he was only kind of out doing his thing for like eight months. That's crazy. And was 17. It's crazy, right? What do you think about all that? It's just way, way too early. He yeah. definitely could have been probably enormous. Yeah. I mean. The sad thing about, which I read in an LA Times article, um, is that Keen, Keen has like the major all the uh, rights to the songs, I think from what I remember reading I didn't write it down because I didn't really really want to go into it but I guess I will yeah his mom um, who is, has passed and the family have the rights to his image um, 
because it's her son clearly but Keen kind of because he was only around for eight months with Keen and hadn't really they weren't really savvy with the contracts that were being thrown in front of him he has all the rights to the song so he gets the majority of the money and Keen said it cost him so it cost him seven grand he said well I you know she the Connie his mom was saying like you know we didn't have anything like we didn't benefit from this at all we have no money we lost our house uh the car that you'd watch La Bamba like Keen gives Richie this big flashy convertible car you know when his song gets on the radio Keen showed up and like took the car away from his mom you know and he was like well I never this was a gift I never said he could have it you know which was just a shit thing to do but Keen was like look I lost money too I I was broke they just happened to be more broke but he's like I paid seven grand to have his body you know come back from Iowa and the mom's like well yeah you you should put it on a train you know you didn't like fly it home or anything like that and then he gave her after the funeral he gave her a bill for four grand so she had to pay the four grand for the funeral which she thought was she didn't have you know um and well didn't did he have any help in booking this shitty tour because if he did, then he's a real asshole for killing Richie Valens and then <laughs> well, he, being shitty to everybody. He didn't kill him. <laughs> that's not I mean, but if you booked a shitty tour and you book all these cities like that, yeah, that's partly his fault. And yeah. plus, he sounds like an asshole, so it's like. Well, but also you have to remember it's it was very different back then. I don't want to, you know, you know they didn't, you didn't have fancy tour buses and roadies and. You know, somebody that you could call and be like, hey, this sucks. Get me out of this. These were all people who were struggling and trying to be famous and trying to get on the radio, you know, and and that's just the way it was back then. You know, and they were all kind of just suffering through it. Um, You know, uh, a guy that's kind of a historian for uh, Richie Valens and does a lot of research was like it's basically called the tour from hell. And because this tour, obviously, a lot of things changed. Um, you know, the way that you route a tour is very different. You know, you would never in a million years route a tour like that. No. Um, you know, and, and, and it's just, it's all done very differently. So it's just interesting how things change, but it's just unfortunate. So, yeah, there you go. Latin star, rock and roll star from Pacoima. Shout out Pacoima. All right. I guess I'll play us out with more American pie. <laughs> Thanks guys. Right. Follow us Follow, on social media. Yeah. See you next week. Thank you for listening.